This episode's a little different than some other ones. We get into the Holiday Farm Fire, which around here was a pretty big deal. It might not sound as familiar if you don't live in the Pacific Northwest, but I think it applies to the West Coast of Canada and America with all the fires we're having. And, you know, we're the world suffering from uh, a lot with the hurricanes and flooding all around the world and a lot of things going on. And this is just how it's kind of affected us in this corner. So we wanted to do an episode about it. We talked to Jesse, who's uh, a local arborist who's got a property that was right in the middle of the fire. So, you know, hopefully you guys enjoy the episode. Just want to say a big thanks to everybody who's supporting. It's cool to see this thing growing. We got more people reaching out on social media and that is really good because we want to do the best podcast we can. And that happens by hearing from people and hearing what people like and hearing what people don't like. So thanks for the shout outs. We always love a five-star review. So if you want to throw out a five-star review, that's awesome. And with that, we'll take care of some business and then get right to it. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not, nor is it intended to be, a substitute for professional arboriculture advice and should never be relied upon to perform or direct arboricultural work. The Tree Thinking Podcast makes no representations as to the accuracy, completeness, or suitability of any information on this podcast and will not be liable for any damages arising from the use of any information in the practice of arboriculture or tree work. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The podcast and its hosts are not to be held responsible for misuse, cited, and or unsighted copies of the content within this podcast by others. The Tree Thinking Podcast may not be reproduced or distributed without the express written consent of the Tree Thinking Podcast. On the evening of September 7th of 2020, fire raged throughout the West Coast. In our corner of the Pacific Northwest, the holiday farm fire was just starting. It was a deadly mix of devastating fire being pushed by winds reaching 70 miles an hour. As night fell, the smoke had started to roll down the hill. We woke up the next morning to ash falling from the sky like snow, and there was a thick fog of smoke. It ended up burning just over 173,000 acres. On this episode of the Tree Thinking Podcast, we talk with Jesse Wilson and take a look at one of the biggest natural disasters our area has been through to see what we can learn on the Holiday Farm Fire One Year's Retrospective. All right, we're back for another episode of the Tree Thinking Podcast. This episode should be a little bit of a different one. Uh, This week we're going to do a topical episode and around, you know, for a lot of people out there, I know we get listeners from all around the world we're going to be talking about the Holiday Farm Fire, which is a fire that rolled through here a year ago today. Um, and so that fire changed a lot of people's lives. It, it, erased, it, it erased towns off of the map. A lot of people lost their homes. A couple people lost their lives. It, it also hits on, well, it hits on a lot of issues. But before we get too far into it, I'm Andrew. I'm Corey. And I'm Jesse. 
We got Jesse in here tonight. He's uh, me and Jesse have been buddies for a long time. We worked together for years, and he lives in Ground Zero. He, his house and his life was very much affected by the Holiday Farm Fire. So I wanted to have him on to kind of share his experience and uh, get into that a little bit. Um, like I was saying, the Holiday Farm Fire really, uh, you know, there there's a lot of components to it. You have the storm work component because what fueled that fire was these huge 70-mile-an-hour winds that came through and hit our city. So we'll talk a little bit about the storm work. Um, but it's also, you know, we're getting these big fires. Like the whole West Coast is on fire pretty much this time of year all year. Like, you know... The, the air index was unhealthy again today, you know, because we got fires going on again. And meanwhile, Ida is ripping through Louisiana and now is up in New York creating crazy weather patterns that are these 100-year storms again. And when both those storms just hit a few years ago. So that's something that uh, we'll probably touch on as well. It seems like these 100-year storms are coming in at, you know, two or three-year intervals. Yeah. Probably won't be able to call them 100-year storms for very much longer. Exactly. So, you know, I think that's something that's worth looking at and really is important to look at. Um, But I know Corey did a lot of research on this. Corey, you want to uh, want to catch us up and uh, tell us what kind of get us started? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we uh, we were largely impacted by um, by the holiday farm fire. I know there were some pretty large other fires going on, uh, Beachy Creek, uh, comes to mind. And that one was obviously, you know, pretty significant as well, but our impact was really, you know, this, this, this episode is really just going to focus on, on the, um, on the holiday farm fire and how it impacted all of us, uh, you know, working in and around Eugene and, you know, Blue River and all of those areas. Yeah. That's where we'll go in depth. But I think again, this, you know, when the holiday farm fire was going on, there was a fire north of us and a mm-hmm. fire south of us that were both erasing towns off of maps also. So this, you know, Absolutely. our experience will be around the holiday farm, but man. Man, it's, this is just kind of like a snapshot of what, of what was really going on in the Pacific Northwest totally. during, this, during, during this time frame. Granted, it's just one fire, but I mean, I think you can, there's going to be a lot of crossover between a lot of these stories. So, um, so what was it? It was, um, you know, it had uh, it burned 173,000 acres, uh, 430 homes. It spread to 37,000 acres in 24 hours and 105,000 acres in 48 hours, which is just crazy. If, yeah, if you know anything about fires, if you know anything about the type of fire it was in, you know, thick forested uh, Pacific Northwest Cascades, that's insane. Like if you you hear about those numbers in like central Oregon, right? It's just grassland. It burns through grass so fast, but through timber, it's nuts. Like that is just mind boggling how bad that is. And then, uh, nine deaths, you know, that's just from just the holiday farm fire. Like that is, those are some pretty sobering numbers. Um, it was officially unknown how it started, but they suspected that it was a power line got knocked over. And then that started the blaze. Um, they they traced it back to a an internet internet outage that knocked it, got knocked out. So they think that it knocked the internet line down as well as the power line. And then I think there was a crew that pretty much immediately responded to that fire. So they were there pretty much instantly. Which you know, uh, usually if you respond to one of those really quickly, you can kind of get it under control and you can start working on it. But with those, as Andrew mentioned, those seventy mile an hour winds, 
there's really nothing you can do. Like the fire just has a mind of its own. It, it, uh, it'll have plenty of fuel. It has plenty of oxygen and it'll just, it'll do whatever it wants to do. No matter what humanity or humans or anything really, really wants to, to try to stop it. Like it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. These, these weather events are good reminders that we are just little insects on this planet. You know, we like to think we can control things, but when, uh, when bigger forces want to have their way with us, that's exactly what they do, you know? Well, and yeah, can you imagine being those crews? Cause like you say, usually you get to that fire as a crew and you can at least contain it or, you know, but I, I heard stories where, you know, they got there, thought they were getting there quick, but then these 70 mile an hour winds hit and are just thrown embers. And it quickly goes from like, Oh, quick, we got here quick to, we need to get out of here. Cause this is getting out of control. Yep. It just jumped our line, and it just jumped li- our line again, and it just jumped the line that we thought was going to be the fallback line, and now we don't have a safe zone anymore. Like, yeah, it's it's terrifying. Yeah. So, uh, Jesse, were you at home when it was going on? Uh, yeah, I was at home. I had, uh, well, I live on a, a property in Vida, across the Good Pasture Cover Bridge, and... Yeah, it was kind of wrapping up Labor Day weekend, and I'm pretty sure it was taco night. And uh, <laughs> we found ourselves hanging out, watching the stars. We had watched all this smoke really start to pour in um, from Up Valley, and, and it was the wind that, of course, was like the real event. Yeah. And so that was the, you know, that was the catalyst that took the fire and made it a real thing. Mm-hmm. And like you spoke to it, gosh, it moved so fast that – I think the fire started around maybe 8 30 9 o'clock 8 30 on the uh, 7th of uh, uh, September yeah on Monday and then we had uh, somebody who lived on the land with us came and woke me up um, gosh it must have been probably 12 30 o'clock you know something in the in the middle of the night basically although maybe we might have been up drinking tequila you know only a couple hours before <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he just said, yeah, level evac, uh, level three evac, you know, don't grab anything, just get out of here. And wow. so we, you know, there was a couple of people staying with us. It was kind of end of summer, kind of harvest season on our family farm. So we had um, a host of different people there and, of course, lots of animals. And I think like probably 99% of people were thoroughly unprepared for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I didn't even have... Um, the wherewithal to, to start to pack a vehicle or anything like that. I, w- I just kind of needed to sit down and just kind of, even though it was kind of a blizzard of ashes at the time, it, it very was very much was apocalyptic because we were feeling that smoke pressure from up upstream mm-hmm. and you know, structures had already, already fully you know, incinerated. So like we were you know, breathing burnt fiberglass insulation that was floating in the sky. I mean, who knows? It was so yeah. brutal. The smoke from that fire. Yeah, I mean, beyond, you know, it's probably like just consistently smoking a cigarette for, for how many hours mm-hmm. yep. without yeah. ever putting it down. Mm-hmm. It's probably on par with that. Uh, yeah. And maybe just as many chemicals, you know, it was, it was, it was brutal. Well, maybe, maybe a few less. Well. Maybe just, just a couple. Considering we, we might have been smoking a few cigarettes also, just. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, it, it, was, it was pretty sobering. Yeah. To realize that, okay, we need to actually get a head count. We need to figure out what we're going to do with the animals. And yeah, wh- what do we do? 
do we do we just immediately leave like like the sirens are, are wailing down the road you can hear them right and that's hardcore the thought of like leave everything just get out yeah when you're talking about your family heirlooms you know because that fa- that place has been in your family for a while right yeah since 1981 so i'd imagine there's family heirlooms there there you know that's just that thought alone much less before you get to animals and things that are even more important the like just get out now mm-hmm. oh yeah i mean i of course had that first thought like okay well if i were to really leave what go grab the espresso machine i think i mean i, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't really realize like the severity of of all these things, right? I actually, I kind of let go of the things really quickly and it was, I kind of kicked into, you know, okay, well, what can we do? I'm a really pretty res- resolution-based person and I think yeah. that's helped, helped me a lot in the tree care industry when you went and run into all these strange problems. Yeah. And you recognize that the stakes are, are life and death, right? When we were talking about wildfire, we'd seen the smoke. We knew that there was these devastating fires happening in watersheds just to the north and all throughout the, like, Medford, Ashland areas. And we knew that the gravity of this was real. But until you are a climate refugee and it really does burn up your backyard, you don't really understand the impacts of, of something that, I'm going to refer to it as global climate change, but we're, we're, I'm assuming we're going to talk about that a little bit yeah, more. But yeah. that, I mean, there were some implications of what was going on that I had actually, I personally had forecast. I was like, this is going to be a really bad fire season. Yeah. Given the last couple of years where we've seen this incremental buildup that doesn't seem to have an end, it's kind of the manifestation of how many decades of poor forestry management, monoculture, you know, farming on our forest lands development of of silviculture practices that are completely far from sustainable despite the all the billboards that tell you how sustainable seneca is <laughs> i i believe every word that those billboards tell me well, <laughs> you also believe that you know we should probably start planting you know sierra nevada high mountain <laughs> arid climate trees because the climate is moving you know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it it's uh it was like for me the the first like those first moments of realizing like oh something big is going to happen well to be honest i didn't even think i didn't realize something big was going to happen i heard that there was a big fire starting right mm-hmm. and i had i had actually gone on a call out with the city just a random branch had broken in a tree and fall you know was hanging over the street so i went out it was the end of labor day weekend so I, you know, I was like, oh, damn it. The weekend ended a little earlier. I got to go out, honey. So I go and, you know, get this branch down and come back. And as I come back in, all of a sudden I smell smoke. And it went from like this beautiful blue skies, you know, weekend afternoon. at Like as I'm getting home to my wife's running around shutting the windows like, oh, my God, the smoke's coming in. And you can just see this cloud descending on the city and that's a little different because usually you know we've been like you said we've been dealing with this for a few years you know as it's ramped up every year but it's like a haze that over a day kind of starts to build up or over a few days and this was went from like clear skies beautiful day to just like a cloud coming in and then that was the other weird thing that you mentioned the ash in the air 
that's like, okay, this is next level. This isn't just a haze. There's like chunks of burning trees floating around me right now. Yeah, my mom was alive for when Mount St. Helens blew, and she talks about the ash raining down and just the just the apocalyptic feel of that. And, I mean, this this felt like she described it, you know, just otherworldly, like completely not of this earth kind of thing. And so that was as it was getting dark. Although, you know, with the timeline, I wonder, because there was other fires around, I wonder if that smoke was coming from another fire and just being blown in by the heavy wind. That was my experience. It was yeah. probably around 5 p.m. Yeah, I'll and bet that's what was going on. Yeah, it looked like somebody was pouring a beaker of liquid, you know, or gasified, you know. Yeah. Uh, just chemistry lab smoke was coming and just getting poured at, into the valley from above. Yeah, because and like we so were... That, that oh. was really ominous. I was like, what is going on? And, and okay, we associated it with the fire elsewhere. And so yeah. that was the strange timing aspect. Yeah. That... Here's the smoke shows up at five o'clock. The fire didn't actually start till closer to nine. So yeah. we were for many hours there, feeling the effect, the pressure from somewhere else. Yeah, but it still was so ominous that it spooked us. So it did put us all kind of in, on alert. Well, and it was the conditions because it was that wind was starting, like the storm was pushing in, and everybody knows that feeling of like. You can feel when a powerful storms. You know, there's almost an energy in the air. Yeah, there's like an electricity. And and so that wind that ended up fueling the fire was also pushing that smoke in. Mm-hmm. So it was really the next day that I was I was seeing the ash in the air. This is a year later, so some of this you know we're kind of remembering on the fly here. So you're gonna have to bear with us a little bit. A little fuzzy. Don't uh, don't fact check us. Yeah. No. Do fact check us. Just understand you might need to. Yeah. <laughs> um. So. Yeah, that was waking up and remembering going to bed with some smoke and then waking up. That's when I started seeing ash. And that was, so a couple things that I had going on at the time is my forced air unit went out. So I didn't have, it was Perfect. it was Perfect. hot and I didn't have a AC, which, you know, I'm just a spoiled brat. So, you know, <laughs> but so we had to close all the windows up. And we couldn't open anything up because it was so thick. And so it was just super hot. And I had to close all the windows in the house nonstop to keep the smoke out. And and then the other thing was my truck, uh, the FJ was in the shop. So I was driving my my tree truck, my old 77 Ford, you know, where the windows are cracked. And I got in to go to work in the old Ford. And I looked uh, down into the passenger seat foot area and there was wind kind of blowing as the, eight, as the truck turned on and the fans started going. And there's ash like spinning in that foot area. And I remember thinking like, oh, that's, that's not good. <laughs> Quite bad, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was uh, in the middle of what was going to be one of our big vacations for that year. I, we had, that's right. Yeah, we had saved up a bunch of vacation for Labor Day weekend. Um, I live in uh, Brownsville, so it was on the northern end of the, the holiday farm fire, like impact-wise. Um, but it was still well within the holiday farm fire. It wasn't quite uh, Beachy Creek. Um, so we were in, the plan was to go to do tree work in three different states over like a week week period, right? I was going to go f- visit some friends over in Idaho. They live um, on Cascade right next to the lake, gorgeous area. And then we we're going to go up to uh, Bellingham, Washington, I think. Yeah, or 
it's Bell. It's near Bellingham. Anyway, we were going to go up there, and then we were going to do some tree work up there too. So we we're going to do this whole thing. It was going to be, you know, the last big vacation of the summer, and we had been saving up, you know, all year for this, and it was going to just, it was going to be great, right? Real, real quick, this is how much of tree nerds we are. You're like, it was going to be the last big vacation. I was so looking forward to doing tree work in three different states. <laughs> Over a week. Like, yeah. it, it sounded great. Western states, too. It, it's not like the East Coast states where you can, you know, drive 30 minutes and then you're in another state kind of thing. This is like miles and miles. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. Uh, so we were in Idaho, right? And we start hearing these reports. We're, we're I remember sitting in the living room with my friends and we start hearing these reports and we start looking at some of these fire maps and we're like, Oh, this is, this is bad. This is really, really bad. Like we have to go home. Like we have to go home like ASAP. Right. And, um, so we do, we, we start packing everything up. We start getting ready. Um, and, uh, so we start heading back. Right. We went over, uh, we took, we didn't, we didn't cut up north. We went over Highway 58. Yeah, we took 58 over and then cut up that direction, right? So when, we, when we're coming back, we start seeing all these highways are closing, right? We had, we had seen it the night before, but now they're starting to close even more, right? So we had seen that Highway 20 had closed down completely, so we couldn't come back that way. We had seen that Highway 126 had closed down completely, so we couldn't go that way, right? So we were aiming for either Highway 22 or Highway 58, right? And we got there... I think right before 58, I think they shut down Highway 58 probably the same day that we drove through it. And like just driving through and seeing the smoke plume, uh, it was up off to the north at this point from 58, just seeing the smoke plume just pouring into the sky and then driving into Eugene. And like, uh, so clear skies, you know, over in Idaho, Central Oregon, uh, nothing, right? You're just, you're driving through, everything looks fine. We're like, okay, well, Maybe it's not as bad. I mean, we're not we're not there. We're you know we're getting close. We're at the foothills of the Cascades, so it can't be that bad, right? And then you you start getting. I, I remember it was right near like Dexter Lake, where this where the, we saw the smoke pl- plume, um, you know, a little bit before Dexter Lake, and then you get to Dexter Lake, and it's just like you see smoke, and then you see more smoke, and before you know it, you can't see the car in front of you. That's maybe two car lengths in front of you because it's so thick. And like just driving back into this was just insane. And we get back to our house. Um, we had some, uh, my sister-in-law had uh, her family. They lived up in Mill City and they were heavily impacted by it. And we offered them our place to stay, um, but we didn't have power. So we came back to no power, you know, just this apocalyptic, smoky feeling. We try to like make heads or tails out of this. Like what is going on? What, what is this? What, 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 what? Yeah, and that's what a couple days into the fire at that point. Yes, so this is um, we drove back. So Monday it hit, right? We drove back all day. This would have been Tuesday night that we came back, and everything was just like gone to shit. Like we were driving back on the freeway because we c- cut over fifty eight and then cut up the freeway. Right, there was a bunch of traffic. People were panicky, you know, as they should have been. They were like RVs and stuff like pulled off. Like people just crashed their RVs because they were so panicked. And did you just see him abandoned, like on the side of the road? It was, it was insane. Like just driving back into that, uh, yeah, insanity. Yeah. So, yeah, that that was crazy because I remember when it first hit, Jamie was working at the city still, mm-hmm. and both you and Jamie were at a state on vacation, yeah. and so it was me and Becca, Sean and Jeff, 
Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, and there's a whole big storm, but we'll get into that later. I'm kind of curious because kind of what you're talking about or what I'm thinking about when you were telling that story is how, how it, how so many people were displaced, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm sure like, what did, what did you guys do? Where did, where did you go once you, you know, you get the evacuation notice, Hey, you got to get out of here, take what you can hold and get the hell out. Where did you go? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, we, we decided to not go anywhere for a little while. Okay. We, I, um, decided that we should get a head count. We, there was about 10 people living at that property. So made sure everybody was accounted for. All the animals were accounted for. Um, everybody left. And we had a friend who had a little apartment space that was just, you know, fortunately a- available at the time and there was no o- occupants. So we were able to have our little two bedroom crash site. It was a lot better than a hotel. Very yeah, fortunate about that. But it still was, you know, six people and five animals and everything all smashed into one spot and no furnishings. They were just, you know, crash on the floor or whatever. And of course, it's also kind of during COVID. So you're like, things are just still kind of iffy. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, can you go out? Can you socialize? Can you be confined in indoor spaces with other people for extended periods of time? Well, and yeah, now we're a little bit more comfortable with right. COVID, you know, and like, you know, not trying to go down that whole rabbit hole of, you know, what's the okay lines with COVID. But I think people have settled into their own personal comfort levels more mm-hmm. with, you know, their bubble and their exposure levels and stuff. But that was during COVID when it was still kind of a crazy, like, what is this thing we're dealing with? Yeah, correct. And not, and, you know, it was highly advised to not go outside either. Yeah. Because of the air pollution quality. So, you know, we, we were very fortunate in that sense, but um, so before we actually left, though, we we did stick around until about eight thirty in the morning. I had some innate desire to see the sunrise. I was really curious, you know, what's, what's this gonna look like in the daytime? Yeah. Um, what is this? This you know, beast from Mordor is like coming down the <laughs> valley, and you know, and there were there's definitely some uh, precautionary measures that we took. So we we had no power. We, f- we figured out the generator situation that sent power to our well pump. And so we were able to start setting up sprinklers. I was like, well, we know it's coming from the east. So let's set up all our sprinklers on all the eastern sides of all the, of our buildings, um, which just happened. All of our buildings have large covered decks <laughs> facing east <laughs> with who knows, you know, basically 40 years of accumulated uh, tinder. <laughs> <laughs> And so we did that. I mean, we legitimately just set up the tripod sprinklers on the deck, blasting the house into the landscape, 360, just send it. And every hour or so, we'd move it about, you know, 20, 30 feet and just kind of cover the span of all all the proximity we could. And we moved vehicles. We, like, made sure we put the tractor in a zone that we thought, oh, this is kind of an open, safe spot. Not, like... We, didn't, we took it out of a structure because we didn't want it to potentially burn down, you know? I was yeah, like, okay, yeah. if, if in the chance that we do come back and survive through this, we're going to need a tractor. Yep. <laughs> we did little things like that. Um, there's d- definitely some smoke fatigue that happened, too. So we, we took some breaks, went into the old basement. Yeah. And, you know, 
had the doors closed in the basement, so we had a little safe spot where we were really sure there wasn't a lot of smoke. And we'd go in there and take little 20-minute breaks and just kind of brainstorm. So it was, it was myself and two other friends that were willing to risk their lives. <laughs> um, and we did that till, I want to say, close to 8 o'clock in the morning. Sun, you know, sun came up. Couldn't tell. It was uh, still glowing orange and yet dark wow. and ominous. And, and like you were saying, pretty much insane. Like, yeah, some apocalyptic novel taking place. And all of a sudden, I'm like starring in the novel. And, you know, I was like, okay, this is my family property. Like, we can, we can stay and defend it. The place, ironically enough, had fire hoses. has like two-inch main lines with all these heads in different parts of the property it's about oh. 20 acres oh man so i was kind of like in this situation where like i could legitimately stay with the ship yeah yeah but at what cost and i'm, I'm gonna put my friends lives at risk and um anyways you know what really was the game changer for me was uh a phone conversation i had with rob okay brother yeah because we had gotten clued in that Blue River was gone, right? Yeah, that that was a hardcore one for me because we have the family a family property in Blue. Or yeah, we have the property now, but just hearing it's burning, and then some yeah. other family friends were living in it. You know, so it's like, man, did Vito and his right, family exactly. make it out? You know, no, but the information was just little bits and pieces, and it would be like hearsay. You know, it kind of reminded me a little bit of how you get information back in the day because now you get information and it's all over your, you know, the news or your phone. And so you're getting, but like then the information, you're trying to get information so fast and there's so many rumors going around and so much stuff that like, you couldn't fully trust it. You're getting like this hearsay information and it was like hard to really pin down what was going on. Yeah. I mean, it was a bona fide uh, rumor mill. Yeah. But I will say talking to Rob, summed it up for me he's like you don't understand the magnitude of the wind yeah and i remember standing on my deck facing east trying to watch the sun come up and thinking you know what this is great and all but there's there's, at the end of the day there's not much i could do and i'm not afraid of the fire but the smoke is going to kill me like that's that would be the stupidest way to die in my opinion yeah so yeah how do you ride a fire out like, even if you have a little bubble where you're going to be, you know, where, like, you're not in the, something burnable, like the smoke, the heat, the, like, how do you, I actually heard a story, it wasn't the Holiday Farm, it was one of the ones up north of us, in the North Fork of the Santiam, some guy decided to stay on his property, and he wrote it out by going into the middle of the North, north Fork of the Santiam, and he just had a plastic chair. And he just like got behind a rock and there's like big dead chunks of tree coming down the river burnt, you know, and like tinders. And he just fucking rode it out in the middle of this river with a plastic chair that like got all melted. I mean, just the you man, the stories that came out were so crazy. Yeah, well, we we definitely had a, have our fair share of stories. I mean, the one of the best parts for me was, um, you know, we, we did lose a few structures and we lost uh Greenhouse I had this really sweet greenhouse that we built out of uh, redwood and glass and all these swinging doors, so you can open it. It was shaped like a, in a hexagon, Ugh. and um, typically I have a bunch of citrus trees in there because it's all framed up. I insulated it and, and had heat and like got my little 
lemon and lime collection, right? And, and you know, it was peak summer and really hot, so I'd taken all the citrus trees out of the greenhouse. The greenhouse ended up burning down, but in just a must must have been like the most glorious fashion because we got a little bit of it on game cam because we had uh, some. I had my flock of ducks, right, into, like, regenerative land management. So I got the ducks out there uh, next to the garden doing their slug patrol. But it had a predator problem. So I got a game cam. Oh. Set the game cam up to view the ducks. And then in the background is the greenhouse. And we see we ended up salvaging the SD card out of the thing because it did it had all this, like, melted plastic in the game cam. Like, warrior made it through. Yeah. But nice. Preserve the info, the black box. And we plugged it in, and we're watching this footage of the ducks literally sitting there, right? The phrase sitting duck is, like, such a thing. <laughs> and the ducks are sitting there, and it's raining fire from the sky. And you can just watch the little temperature gauge in the corner just rise. It was, like, 99 degrees. It's, like, whatever, 10 o'clock in the morning. It was about the time. I know about the time wow. that the fire pushed through. Huh. And... I can see like their little nesting boxes catching on fire. The ducks are literally just sitting there. Like, what, what, what else are they gonna do? Yeah, yeah. They're feeding them like all this grain. They're not going anywhere. Yeah, fly away from a forest fire. <laughs> yeah, right. And and in the background, you see this like kind of small explosion. And what happened was a a tree that was along the river had caught on fire, and it burnt out. And about maybe thirty thirty five feet up was where the where the burnout occurred mind you this is probably a 36 inch diameter dug for right right on the mckenzie just a small tree right yeah just, just, a, just a twig yeah and it, and it came down and it came down and it landed on the greenhouse on fire oh man and we got on footage wow and the ducks <laughs> are in the foreground I'm just, and all the ducks survived really That's awesome. yeah, moral of the story all the ducks are right so being a sitting duck might be a survival mechanism actually apparently hey, they've evolved this far so i mean it does something for them so yeah, so there was definitely some stories and and stories that, you know, I definitely think back and like, wow, what if I was there to, to you know, try to fight the fire, right? Yeah. Be a firefighter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here I am with my little tripod sprinklers, and but I'll tell you what, another another micro story here, and then we can we can shift gears, whatever. Oh, go as I, long I, as you want. I, yeah, I, yeah. I took another sprinkler, and I and we have a generator, right? We back up a propane generator, and. My grandparents, who initially like put this property together, had uh, the wisdom to put in a large propane tank. So there's like 1,500 gallons of propane sitting there, right? <laughs> and I was like, "Well, I should probably put a sprinkler on the propane tank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, just see what happens." And here it's going, right? Little my little like, and and you know, post fire, we go back and you look at the propane tank. This is perfect 360 degree charred ring around the propane tank perfect 360 degree circle oh my god it wow worked. It yeah worked. and so that that of course you know kept the irrigation running right long yeah. enough because it kept the fuel source to the, to the to the you know sending power to the generator generator to the pump and like <laughs> like we still had water still so had like wow. little things like that like not only would it have completely leveled the house and destroyed the rest of the surrounding forest and you know who knows what else but it simply allowed the play the rest of the property to keep working so little things like that 
Yeah. Right? That was me fighting the fire. Yeah. Totally. So yeah. to speak. And we're doing it at, at four o'clock in the morning, like still, you know, yeah. little tequila drunk, smoking cigarettes, running around on the tractor, the headlights, like, wow, it's actually like a blizzard. Yeah. Like we yeah. actually can't really wow. like see fifteen feet in front of us. Yeah. That's gotta be such a crazy like mind state feel. You know, and I'm trying to relate this to tree work because this is a tree podcast and maybe I'm way off, but it, you kind of uh, clued into it earlier where you said, you know, it's part of being a tree, you know, tree worker is you find yourself in these crazy situations and you have to be like task oriented. Okay. I'm doing this. Now I'm doing this. And maybe not thinking of like the big, you know, you're not thinking about the whole removal. You're thinking about the stick you got to cut in front of you. Mm-hmm. You know, a big tree comes down one stick at a time. Yep. Do you think that kind of mentality kind of helped keep your head in the game for that. Cause it seems like you were, you know, when everyone's like, you just got to run, you're like, well, I actually got to do a couple other things first. So yes. I'll be right there. <laughs> that was precisely it. I mean, it, it, it called into question a certain degree of leadership, which I think by working on crews and, and, and working really highly collaboratively again, when the stakes are high, you know, that ability came in handy, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it allowed me to kind of string together a series of thoughts, assess the situation, a look at all the little details, but don't get caught up on all the little details either. I got to understand the big picture, which is, you know, life is more important than th- these things, these buildings, you know. Yeah. So I it was it was very um, useful to have been so associated with the trees. I'm also really considerate because, like you said, it was, it was a windstorm. So I was like, we're not going in the woods. Don't go in the woods. We had numerous trees that came down that weren't even affected by the fire, but they were affected by the wind. They blew. They were. It was a wind throw. Yeah. Wow. Big trees too. Mm-hmm. So, because yeah, that was a powerful wind that came ripping down the hill. Oh yeah, and and the topography of where we are is also unique because it it really is a forge zone. I mean, it, it pipes right there. There's this, there's steep incline on either side of the valley, and it's kind of open, um, way more open upstream, and then it gets really condensed, and then it kind of. Yeah, bottlenecks, hourglasses back open again huh. onto Liebert Dam. <coughs> so we were in this spot where, it, yeah, it got hot. Yeah. And there was, it was also really fast. I mean, you could tell that the wind was the factor because of the rate at which it burned through the forest. And, you know, from my, my experience was something that I, I, I look back after a year of having kind of moved back out there and then I'm just thinking, wow, this fire though is, it's so natural, but it's so unnatural. Mm-hmm. That was the real paradox for me. It's like, this is normal. This is to be expected. But this is also a byproduct of, of not only poor land management, but, I mean, think you all the structures. And I, you know, at the end of the day, I was really worried about the river. This yeah. is something I talked with uh, Nathaniel about, actually, is that the river was the bearer of all this. It was the, the thing that flushed it out yeah. After, yeah. after all that unnatural fire. All the structures, yeah, all, all, all the the vehicles, all yeah, the all fertilizers. The, all that cigarette, to use our analogy, all that cigarette chemicals just washing straight into that yeah, that funnel. Yeah, and I think that, that was symbolic of, um, you know, many things that are going on in the world today. And so that maybe is a good segue to open up, like, what what are the, the what's the aftermath 5, 10, 15 years from now? You know, how does that impact salmon runs? Yeah, right. how do we talk about now the the thereafter the restoration versus the degradation? Like, where's the line there? I mean, I've been doing some work with the utility company, doing hazardous tree risk assessments, 
working with private property owners, working with a host of different nonprofit agencies. And it really has been nice to be boots on the ground, living it, feeling it. Also knowing that we're somehow very much just car- cashed in all our karma points, right? That we, we got pretty lucky too. So, you know, we're out there, we're farming and we're figuring it out. And it's like at the resiliency factor is, is really called into question here too. So, I mean, I can speak more about that, my own personal story, but again, that kind of comes back to what you're talking about, which is as uh, somebody who works with trees, you learn about resiliency yeah, on a scale that is different than typical human understanding of resiliency. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, you say you cashed out all your karma points and I've thought a lot about karma and I've come to a point with karma where there's not good karma or bad karma. There's just karma. Yeah. Right. It right. like, and so this whole thing is kind of the karma that we're dealing with. If, if you're looking at the, you know, the big picture, you know, the poor land management, you know, the, the drought that we're in because of, you know, decisions that we've made as a species in a lot of ways, you know, um, and whether that decision is what got us here or, or the decision is not doing something more about where we're at in the moment, no matter how we got here, you know, it's, uh, we, karma always comes through. It's not good or bad. It's just what we get because of it, because it's what we get, you know? Yeah. They say karma never loses an address. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that is uh man, what a what a crazy experience. I like I think that's you know, some things in life you don't really know how you're gonna react. You don't know until you're in that moment, and that's gotta be one of those one of those experiences. Let's see. So kind of the immediate impact. You know, and going along with what you're saying, the river, that was one of the things that stood out to me, you know, because we get all our water from the river. So right away, our sinks tasted like ash. Yeah. You know, no matter, the city was doing its best to filter that water, but you can only filter so much when you've got a whole forest of ash in the river. The impact on the river, everything downstream, that's got to be crazy. Yeah, I mean, apparently uh, they used to call the Mackenzie River Valley, whoever they is, um, <laughs> the asbestos forest. Think with this notion that it can never burn. It, it, it can't be impacted by fire. It's too wet. It's too, oh, you know, yeah. it's too, too established and, and there's too much human life there. It could never happen. It, it sounds like, didn't. What did they say about the Titanic? About it not sinking? <laughs> yeah. Is, is that is that off pacing? Well, you know, I think maybe from a human cockiness perspective, but the you know the thing about it is is when I first started doing tree work, it would it would rain in the winter time. It would rain for you know thirty sixty days straight. You'd just get nonstop rain in the winter. And, you know, maybe you get a couple-day break, and then it'd rain again all winter. And then in the summer, you know, every couple weeks you get a rain. You know, now, I mean, it hasn't it hasn't rained in a long... Well, you know, we've got little sprinkles. But when you're talking about an actual rain, did it rain maybe twice last winter? Where it was, like, downpour, like, real rain. Not just, like, a shower 
or not just a little bit, but where it rained all day long. Yeah. You know, it, we just don't have that. We don't. And, uh, you know, thinking about it from a fire ecology standpoint, you, you have a river there, right? And people, people will always say like going back to your story about the guy in the middle of Santiam, you know, he, he went to the center of a lake, right? Cause that was his, that's what he thought his safe spot was. It's right next to water. You know, it'll keep the, the stuff greener and drier or less dry. And, you know, it'll be a good protection zone. In fires, it's actually, water doesn't do a whole lot other than increase the volume of burnable material immediately next to it. So you, you have this buildup of burnable material right there concentrated. You get enough heat, it'll combust. Anything will burn if you get it hot enough. And if you have a fire like that, just perfect storm, it's a tinderbox. The whole thing just just goes. That being said, though, and that totally makes sense. But that being said, if you're getting rain every couple weeks through the summer, yeah, that like those sparks that the fire's throwing, right, right. So, even if you have crazy wind, you know, maybe, yeah, yeah, no, no. Uh, so going back to your point, you have that. So you have that water running down the river, right? And the stuff, um, the stuff immediately next to the river isn't ne- is drawing some moisture from it, but it doesn't have that that. Um, uh, the atmospheric moisture, I guess. Yeah. So it's just, it's the moisture in the river that is drawing up, but the atmospheric moisture is not there, which it has been historically used to. So it, it is just a tinderbox because it's not getting that rain that it's used, it's, you know, its entire existence it's been used to. So it, it is just a tinderbox because yeah, no rain, huge fuel loads, and then you get uh, the crazy wind forces like that and the crazy fires like that. And yeah. Yeah, you got those big like, 30, 50 year moss mats, which if they're getting water and getting soaked every couple weeks, it's like trying to burn a sponge. It's trying to burn a sponge. But if it hasn't gotten water for a bunch of months, then it's, it, it is just fire starter mm-hmm. at that point, you know? So yeah. Add in some, uh, fire suppression. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, yeah. Some yeah. <laughs> get away from low intensity burn and you're going to end up with high intensity burn. It's right. It is a strange cycle. A lot of things in the fire ecology are, are they're intuitive, but a little bit counterintuitive to the to somebody who's not used to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you know, this is an opinion thing here, but if if you were part of the indigenous culture that was steeped in um, land management through fire, is the only way. Right. Yeah, is the only way. It was. It was. That's how you do it. Mm-hmm. You know. And nowadays we can't hardly imagine what that would be like. And a part of that's what I was speaking to about the unnatural aspects of the fire and the, the fact that. You know, trees that were lost, old growth trees along the river. You know, they 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 would have survived the fire had it not been for the eighteen hundred square foot log home right immediately adjacent to them. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you have these structure fires that ca- had ca- cataclysmic impact on some of our most mature stands of trees along the immediate riparian areas, and not to mention that is where the wind was kind of piping the most hot. So it lifted those structure fires way in the canopy yeah so now we have canopy fires that yeah. might otherwise not have occurred so again that's a that's a byproduct of low impact low intensity fire regimens versus these high intensity burns are the way that it travels through the canopy and we watched it right before we left we watched canopy fires taking place across the river damn maybe a mile and a half from our place and there was it was that ember throw yeah, that, it was that was a sight to be seen. I mean, it put to shame fireworks shows. This was in all directions, 
swirling up, moving down sideways into each other. It was the, when you hear about how fire systems create their own weather patterns and stuff like that, you could watch it and it had all these swirling embers in it that were on fire. Uh, illustrate the weather pattern. Sh- you could, so you could see where the wind dynamic was happening, which otherwise you couldn't see. So it had almost like a tornado type effect when you see the cow and the tornado. Uh, wow. tornado. You're like, oh, well, it's going that way. Yeah, f- uh, fire whirl is what we, we called them. Yeah. Fire whirls. Well, for someone like myself, I mean, this was out of uh, animation or something. But, you know, it was also at that point that we decided we should probably leave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Again, it, it makes you feel how truly insignificant you are in the grand scheme of things. Like yeah. seeing a force of nature like that, just like, what are you going to do? Well, and it's kind of crazy because if you think about it, you had the ability to get in a gas powered vehicle and get the hell out of there. Right. Most people throughout history, if they saw that, that they, you know, you're not outrunning that fire. Yeah. You know, like maybe you had a horse. If you had a horse, you were probably all right. Maybe. <laughs> you know, maybe. Yeah, horses spook pretty easy. Or, well, yeah, hor- one, horses spook pretty easy. And two, did you have the developed road to be able to travel that fast on a horse to get out of it? Mm-hmm. You know, so like yeah. what you saw is, a. I mean, I wonder how many people throughout, like w- at what point in history could people see that and still live? You yeah. know? <laughs> and, well, and we're in a unique situation because we live across the Good Pasture Cover Bridge. Which is like built in thirty-eight, right? Yeah, that so this that is, nice wood timber bridge, <laughs> yeah. like Civic Stadium. I was like, this is like so dry. Yeah, um, and there was a lot a big rumor mill, of course, around that and whether or not the Good Pasture Bridge had burned down. And, yeah, um, they put up a pretty good stand. Firefighters did there, so thankfully that survived. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't have actually even been able to go back to my place. Yeah. Right? Oh my goodness. And because that's the one way in. Which is a unique thing. And I was thinking about it, of course. I was like, well, if the bridge goes, and we actually are stuck here. We're going to be stuck here for a really long time, too. Get up the raft, you know. We'd figure it out. But I was um, very much inclined to uh, try to figure out my animal situation. Like, you brought up the horses, right? We decided with COVID we were going to be at home. Well, let's raise a whole bunch of meat, chickens, and turkeys, and guinea fowl, and... (laughs) We have pheasants, peacock, like you did. Yeah. We had like all these birds. And last thing we did before we did evacuate was open the pens to all the animals, you know, their little paddocks. And, and they had the hen house got cracked open. And we came back a couple of days later. We managed to get back up there and basically did an animal welfare check. And I guess looked at our houses too. But all the animals survived. Wow. That's fantastic. So so that's amazing. Somehow they they did it right. I don't know. They just have a higher tolerance for smoke toxicity or something. Pre-smoked turkey is what uh, we like. (laughs) (laughs) We ended up, um, yeah, coming back, and this was actually part of the adversity. The real adversity was we had no power. Both of our pump houses burned, so we did eventually lose all water to the property. And we, I mean, we were we got a trash pump on craigslist and we're pumping out of the river right because we had no other things to do we emptied the the hot tub with five gallon buckets and like it it was real i mean like the the chips right i love using wood chips byproduct of our our wonderful industry chip mulch pathways all all over the place my whole all around my house all chips right 
<laughs> little pieces of dried out firewood. Just oh, right. <laughs> just more kindling here. We're gonna make a little kindling path around the house, and <laughs> and, and so it's of course. Um, I will say though, having watered pre-fire, it's like actually pretty moistened, so it worked really well as a defensible space, truthfully. But there was some smoldering going on, like under the chips, and um, yeah, those smoldering chip fires could last a long time. For real. That was where it was really cool to actually feel like I was fighting a fire and get out the, the Pulaski's and, and pull fire lines, right? Nice. Just digging fire lines and chips is actually pretty darn easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not tree roots. It's, it's yeah. just chips. Yeah. Like in silty loam soil, too. Really <laughs> yeah, they tell stories about, so fires up in Alaska. So Alaska has this really thick peat stuff, right? Yeah, the peat moss or yeah. the bog. The bog, yeah, kind of like the bog stuff. So fires will get down into there. And it'll sit dormant for a year, two years, and it'll start a new fire. You know, so far removed from that 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 fire that burned through there, it's just insane what it'll do when it gets like it gets just the perfect pocket of like the right mixture of oxygen to keep that spark going, and the right mixture of fuel to like just burn through slowly. But yeah, uh, you know, chip chip piles they'll they'll do the same thing. Oh yeah, we lost a couple really good chip piles. That's like 15 cores of seasoned hardwood. You guys, oh, I just lost damn. all my firewood. I bought firewood after the fire. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> 25 acres of forest land and buying <laughs> firewood. But that's okay. We, you know, we, it was it was something that um, I won't ever have to do again, hopefully. It, it's interesting talking about the chips. Uh, Jason, it... Uh, one of the tree guys that we work with at the city. I don't know if you know uh, Jason. He owns Four Seasons. He Jason lives up Stein, there, right? Jason Stein, yeah. Yeah, this guy's like a legend. I don't know. He's this a guy. total legend, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I've never actually met him, but I've probably talked with about a hundred people about Jason Stein and Four Seasons Tree Care. So I got to meet this guy one of these days. I was kind of hoping that the fire was going to be a catalyst for that, because I also started my own tree care company since the fire. Oh, oh nice. nice. What's so, your company's name? So we are Lionflower Tree Works. Lionflower Tree Works, yeah. nice. Yeah, I had to. I had to. I had to. I'm evacuated, sitting in this little like yeah, no, nothing wrong with that. And like, I'm like, I'm tree. I like doing shit. I like moving. I'm like, okay, yeah. well, smoke so bad. I really shouldn't be doing removals for my neighbors in town. Luckily, I had my truck full of tree gear. So when I did evac, I had all my trees. Nice. Oh man, I didn't. I lost a couple good saws. I, I did lose my saw shack. Ah, uh, dang it! But I had enough of my gear in my truck. I was like, okay, well, I but I can't actually use this. It's like too smoky. So mm-hmm. chill out for a couple of days. Well, F it. I'm going to get my CCB. Like, we're just going to do this. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to get licensed. So we can do the inter- all the internet stuff. And yeah. So, you know, our family farm is called Lionflower Farm. And so it only made sense that we were going to be doing, you know, Lionflower Tree Works. Well, and there's such a big need for tree work up the river. Yeah. You know, I mean, well, I called you to see if you wanted to come on the podcast and you're like, yep, I uh, just rented a chipper. I'll be chipping all day, but yeah, I'm down to make it happen. <laughs> oh, dude, I, maybe, maybe I misspoke or maybe we miscommunicated, but I got a BC 1800, bro. Do you? Whoa. We should, we chipping. Oh, nice. We be chipping. Craigslist, dude. Nice. Wow. I bought it from a little logging family up in Sweet Home at 16,000 cash. This thing rips. Dude, dude, 18 inches. That's a steal. Wow. Well, that yeah, is. because oh, and it's in great shape. It's on 06 with 3,000 hours. That that's Jeez. what we uh, we use at the city. That's what we're chipping with all day. Is yeah. oh, with the winch. Yeah, with the winch, the well, whole nine. Dude, I was like, okay, I'm starting this tree care thing. I'm not going to be pruning fruit trees. 
I'm not working on like no you know, willows. Not up the like, river like, after that fire. It was this like chunky, like five foot diameter cottonwoods. They were just what do you do with it all? You know? Yeah. And everybody's so uptight about fuels nowadays. Yeah. The yep. Psychology of post fire and post fire. Such a big thing. Oh my God. They're just just you know, okay, it's one thing to remove hazardous trees, but leave the friggin' organic matter like right there. Yeah. Yep. And, and but do it responsibly too. Don't just make chip piles. You can broadcast, spread, you know, spray the chips. And then We've been dealing with a lot of this because we've been doing extensive amount of tree work on the property. I mean, the fire did rip through to such a capacity that, I mean, we had probably a dozen 200-foot firs that are still standing that are totally dead, oh, that haven't been dealt with yet. So uh, I, can you fell them? Well, they're in, some of them are in some tight spaces. Okay. And they probably need to, need to be topped before being felled because they are going to have such an impact on surrounding trees that i want to keep and then additionally our property is uniquely situated and uh, adjacent to some blm and the blm land has is is the riverfront so that's where these two big 200 footers totally charge right and and there's 27 of them 27 that have been identified by blm i've been doing a lot of work with the blm forestry department and their fuels reduction team to try to figure out what to do with 27 large hazardous trees on an embankment seven feet from the from the water and about 30 feet from our house and 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 so all of our riverfront trees i mean technically they're not ours right in public public land yours as right. in you are the one that benefits from them and yeah. takes care of them and yeah. sees them and, and is impacted by them you're a taxpayer so yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's part of the public, public access. And our property is, again, uh, uniquely situated. So it has an upstream uh, peninsula that c connects to the riverfront and a downstream peninsula that connects to the riverfront. And then the BLM swath is in between. So it's technically not really available unless you either boat in or you trespass. Yeah. Um, it's yours. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. great. It's friggin' yeah. ideal because we don't pay tax on it and it makes the space feel bigger. And right. But but the trouble is they aren't actually mine because now I have to deal with these trees. Yeah. And BLM, From a legal perspective. And BLM can only get to them by crossing onto our space and there's tight access. I mean, really limited access. And we have people that live in the house right there and so we'd have to evacuate the tenants for the couple of days or they're felling everything. It's just going to completely change the landscape. And I can't be responsible for the replanting or invasive species management. Yeah, you got enough of that on your own property, I'd imagine. Correct, yeah. But this is also our riverfront. It's some of our most fragile, delicate, and highly impacted areas. So it only makes sense that we work something out. So I've been talking with BLM to do a, a private landowner contract for the ability to maintain invasives and then do some fuels reduction stuff. Again, they was trying to get the feds to to hire me, like Flower Tree Works, to do this like epic, epic amount of huge. Like, uh, I was gonna do a bunch of habitat creation. Really, oh man, oh that'd be so sweet. I mean, like the whole thing, are like snags and, and just big old monster uh, nesting sites. And we did it with one. Like I said, we had the upstream peninsula that touches the river. Yeah. So technically, one of these, like, like I said, the twenty eighth tree mm -hmm. is a. Uh, you know, it's three feet in diameter and in right next to the power lines. 
and we uh we decided to, well okay I'm, res- I'm responsible basically so i'm gonna do something about it and we topped it out and within 24 hours we had a pair of osprey sitting on top of the snag oh man oh that is, that is so bad. much potential within that blm land yeah no, to create snags and, and i've been documenting and it and highlighting it and we you know i worked with a cultural anthropologist just came out to to, to assess to see if there's any sort of um you know, remnants on the site and they want to do a formal removal of all the trees and i told them you know what? i'm actually i don't think i'm really going to give you access yeah unless yeah. you walk with me with your arborist and we go through and we discuss every tree individually yeah and That's, so I started at first they were like going to maybe hire me and I was like trying to, you know, play nice and like, yeah. be like, yeah, I have a really sound approach. I've been working in the tree industry for over a decade. Da, 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 da. And, you know, it was going to be this legendary opportunity. And of yeah. course they like squashed my, my bid and like all this stuff. And, and now I have to play hardball. Yeah. So I'm like, you're not going to just come in here and, and tree tip all these with your big old shovel excavator. Like you're not going to let that happen. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, still in the midst of it. Here we are a year after. And I'm like, there's a political side to it. I'm dealing with the federal government. I've been dealing with FEMA, ODOT, which are our state, you know, they're managing the, the road and they're cutting trees that I thought were on our property. Well, turns out there's a 40 foot easement, any way of center of any County maintained road so they're chipping and cutting trees on my, what I thought was my space. Right. You hear that BLM? Come on, work with him. He wants to, he wants to create habitat. He wants to, you know, make a make a lemon lemonade out of lemons. Yeah. Come on, man. I got the ODOT guys to at least leave me uh, habitat snags. I, hey, I that's cool. certain. Oh, they were probably stoked. Cavities. They're like, oh, sweet. We just got to top it off here. Yeah. You know. Oh, they, the climber loved it. He's like, dude, this is so much better than. The rest of the work we've been doing. Yeah. Oh, that's and great. That is good. And somehow, some way, the place has worked out. I mean, like, we we are getting a mill, so that's the other exciting news. We're going to be milling up all this salvage wood and turning some of these big old trees into uh, new houses, new, ha- new, yeah, lumber to build with for a variety of different projects. And then, you know, we have an opportunity to really look at having a lot more sunlight. So the family farm is, we're going to be able to grow more diverse crops i guess so and i think that's that's a good message for this though is like hey you know we can't control what happens but how how are you going to find the positive within it like oh, obviously you didn't want the trees gone but if they're going to be gone how can you benefit well we got more farmland now yeah we have more sunlight which which can be a good and not so good again there's a water conversation tied into that yeah but i have um yeah we've been doing mushroom inoculation projects with the various chips. You know, we've been doing a lot of riparian restoration stuff. Been working in partnership with uh, Northwest Youth Corps. They've been out like multiple weeks at a time with various crews doing invasive species removal and applying chips around uh, trees that were planted by Oregon Woods, mm-hmm. who was a subcontractor that brought it, was brought in to do some replanting. So we've actually already replanted two-thirds of the space. And... Yeah, I mean the, the the list of silver lining things is is long and growing longer. Actually, built a lot of communal partnerships. Right? Yeah, 
got got involved working with a local utility. I've done tree work for pretty much all my neighbors within a mile of my house. So my commute has been nothing. Yeah. So I was go. like, I mean, come on, this has got a, the shortened commute. That's a great silver lining. Oh, like devastating wildfire, especially when you live up the river and your commute is usually. I mean, what's it take thirty five minutes for you to get into town? Yeah, yeah. yeah so <laughs> well, and nowadays that's that's a byproduct that's not so good. Is the traffic is heinous. Oh, and the yeah. because heinous. so that's another aspect of it. That fire rips through. They've had to replace all the power lines, all the communication lines. So anytime you go up any of those roads, there's two spots where you could get stopped from five minutes to two hours, yeah. you know, and, and you don't know what that, if you're going to be an extra five minutes or an extra two hours. Google's not going to tell you. Yep. Uh, a matter of fact, let's take a quick beer break. Uh, just, uh, we'll be back in a minute. Okay. We're back. Um, I think before we. Took a little beer break. We were uh, kind of getting into some of the silver linings, if you know, of uh, the recovery effort, you could say. Um, and that's something that me and Corey worked on with the city. You want to get into that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, obviously, city has a close partnership with um, uh, with EWEB, right? And EWEB pulls... Uh, the McKenzie River is the web source of water, clean, fresh water. So they have a very, very heavy interest in maintaining that. And obviously a giant fire, like you were talking about, you know, all of that washing into the river was really, really bad. So uh, EWEB uh, formed a partnership with um, McKenzie, Wa- uh, McKenzie Water Council, McKenzie uh, Water Trust, um, and then a few other entities. And they kind of formed this, this group where they were working on um, – you know, we were we were part of the initial stage. We went through and we really just identified hazard trees and areas where they were going to be doing uh, mitigation work. Uh, they were either replanting, they were putting in uh, some booms to like kind of redirect some of the water away from uh, uh, built uh, some of the runoff from like right next to buildings. Uh, yeah, so we we really did that. So we went through and we worked uh, closely with McKenzie Water Trust and uh, really just uh, did that for I want to say two weeks. Three weeks, where we maybe maybe it was a month, where we sent somebody up there two or three days a week. Yeah, I I can't remember how la- how long it lasted. It I think it was two weeks. Yeah, I think it was two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we we'd send an arborist. They do the just the just hazard trees. Like we weren't go- doing anything for, you know, as far as property owners, um, uh, you know not really long-term thinking for the sites, really just getting the immediate hazards identified so that the crews could go in and start doing some work and start doing that mitigation before the rains really hit and the runoff became a huge problem. Yeah, it was interesting work. They would, uh, they would, you know, basically just give you, at least when I did it, they just gave me some uh, marking tape mm-hmm. and then I would just measure DBH and uh, anything that looked hazardous, I'd just mark it as, okay, this is hazardous. You know, I I think they gave me six months. They said, do you think, you know, is this hazardous within the next six months? And it was like, all right, yep, this one looks pretty sketchy. Mark this one. And then they would just send crews in behind us. Yep. So we weren't even doing a lot of the work. We were just, because they had the <clears throat> an expert in the hydrodynamics or whatever they call it, how, you know, how the uh, watershed, the the runoff would 
uh, work and they had a couple experts in, in different parts of that riparian area. Yeah. And they had gone through, they had gone through before they were the advanced crews before us. They had looked and they had identified, you know, this spot needs this kind of mitigation work. So we're going to need to do this. And, you know, depending on the impact of that mitigation work, our crew is going to be there for five minutes or they're going to be there for a week kind of thing. And then from there, they kind of came up with a priority list and we came in after that fact to kind of say, okay, well, if you're going to do work here, you need to do this, this and this over the next six month period to make sure that nobody dies. Yeah. There was a lot of work that was going on up there directly after it though. Mm -hmm. You know, and we kind of got off easy. I, uh, I, I actually tried to get Yaniv to come in tonight. He was, he was busy doing, uh, just with some family stuff. So he couldn't make it, but I know he's working for eWeb and they were doing tons of work up there. Just putting in 12 hour days, going you know full storm mode uh for quite a while up there and then you know there's some videos that i saw on youtube of guys doing like helicopter removals and just all kinds of crazy work on you know because it's it's like what you were describing these 200 foot fir trees you know that are just torched and you got to take care of them and you got to get it done as quick as anything that could hit the highway they got you know got to get rid of or somebody's house or you know so there's just a phenomenal amount of work up the river. As you were saying, you got hired on just because you're like, hey, I'm an arborist. And they're like, you're hired. Come with us. <laughs> you know? That That is exactly how it worked, actually. Um, and it was wild because I, I was actually really impressed that they did such extensive amount of work with private property owners. It wasn't exclusively around utilities. It was like... Okay, your place is obviously not what it used to be. It's either completely gone or, it, or it's so negatively impacted that we're going to send in crews, basically. Uh, but they needed the crews to be safe. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, our job was to go and look at, well, what is it that is going to impair people's ability just to access the site? And not even whether those trees were going to live or die, Right. It was really interesting because these are trees that would have otherwise been totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and trees that had been there for you know, longer since then white people have really been around here. Um, so that to me was really interesting to see that, okay, these trees were 180 years old. Some of them that came down at our place and I don't know. I don't, I don't know. What do you, now what are the, right now they're sitting in a big pile waiting to be auctioned off this this fall and winter to the highest bidder. So like, that's what my, the approach looks like to my house is just huge stacks of logs and they're just waiting to be sold. Wow. It's really interesting. Yeah, that is, you know, the, the whole idea of the kind of profiting off of something like this kind of trips me out and I can understand, you know, why you like, why would you just let the, you can't just leave the logs there. You know, there's all kinds of other hazards. You know, there's more fire. I, yeah. Was it Fall Creek where they left a lot of stuff in there and then they had another fire rip through? Something like that. Yeah, I think I think that might have been Fall Creek. Yeah, I mean, that, that was, I think it's a highly contested issue post-fire. It's like, yeah. how much do you leave and how much do you yeah, and get, yeah. haul out of there? I know nothing about it. So if you know about it and you're like, dude, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, you're 100% right. <laughs> but it it's... uh. It, it, I can see how it would be a highly contested issue because there's so much benefit in having those logs on the ground for nurse logs and, you know, helping get nutrients back into the soil. Right. 
Yeah. Every but single one of them has your dollar figure on it. Yeah. yeah, and then there's then there's that whole side of it. And yeah. And dollars speak very very loudly. Well, I all up and down at least where they're doing the, all this ODOT clearing around the roads like yeah. right, right now. Um, I mean, they've been working on it for a long time. It was the, the fire stretched over, I don't know, something like 40 miles or something. So they, they started way up river on the Mackenzie and worked their way down, and we're kind of at the the western edge of where the fire burned. And it's been interesting because now they're showing up, and there's literally, they staple uh, barcodes onto every one of these trees. Mm-hmm. Not only do they put a, a dot signifying that this tree needs to be removed, but they put barcodes and and they put not one but they put three, and they're perforated like little tabs. That they, you know, pick up at the store like, oh, you know, I need a dog sitter or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> they have uh, barcodes, and then somebody walks up, scans the code, pulls the tag. One of them goes to the logging people. One of them goes on the books, and one of them goes whoever knows where it goes. Actually, yeah. But they, they so they're tagged multiple times, and then they get divvied up. And the oh, loggers only get paid. The cutters, the contractors only get paid per tree. Mm. And so they are like, they're there to cut, right? Because that's their money. That's that's fulfilling their contract and getting to move on. And so everybody's got these interesting motives. And it's just kind of interesting to say, okay, well, is this tree in fact need to go? Some of them are, have back lean away from the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they still got a barcode on it. Right. Where where's that tree? Where's that tree gonna go? Okay, so the tree's yeah, the tree's dead, but it's clearly it's dead and poses no impact to the easement. But somebody can say technically, if it fell that way, it would hit the road, so I can sell this. I mean, we need to remove this tree. Safety, um, safe, safe, safety. Get the tree down. Well, I'm glad that they're. It's like everything. It just ends up in the courts at least, and somebody's finally saying, "Hey, we need to put up some sort of moratorium." Or where's the environmental impact statement and we're going to file some lawsuits. So I know there's some environmental groups that have been doing that recently. And I don't know. don't want to say it's too late because there is a lot more work to be done. But just getting a little bit more of a thorough perspective. Yeah. Everybody's got their own, but let's try to consolidate. into. And, and I guess one of the silver linings for that is that, you know, this these fires, unfortunately, are not going to stop happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we, if you start setting that precedent now, like it's awful that it's happening now, and it's awful that you know some of those things are happening here. But maybe if they happen, if they happen here, and somebody raises enough of a fuss, it's not going to happen the next time a fire rips through. And you know, maybe we can salvage more, and maybe we can help that that native area somewhere else a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And again, it's I don't think it's ever too late to you know stand up and fight for what's right, even if it's it's already. You know, maybe past the point where you yeah, the ideal uh, past the point, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and and again, you know, a silver lining thing that I saw just recently because I did some tree work up in Mackenzie Bridge, um, the Finrock Reach, I believe they're calling it. It's owned by the uh, Mackenzie River Trust. It's a somewhat recent acquisition. I'm I'm not the hippest of hip with this kind of stuff, but you know, I follow them on Instagram. <laughs> um, <laughs> But they've done this massive restoration work and most of this big, large woody debris that they've put back into the river. And you see it when you're driving up the highway now. It's one of the redeeming features, I think, of that stretch, which is so graphically redefined. Oh, yeah. Um, Is this really beautiful, meandering, braided uh, diversion system that's been created, you know, 
putting excavators in the river, of course, right? <laughs> it's like r- rummaging through. But then they're taking a lot of this burnt wood that was donated as post-cleanup wood, large woody debris. I mean, huge trees. And then set up this really cool uh, restoration project. And it's in the name of salmon, but also, you know, creating habitat for western pond turtle and so on. So there's cool stuff going on. But whether or not that is going to have the lasting impact that we want to see it have, you know, okay, great. Let's, let's create habitat for salmon. But what, what if the last several, <laughs> you know, uh, flows, the last couple runs in which their populations have been dwindling are not going to be able to sustain if even getting back to that habitat. So yeah, we're facing these bigger questions right now. Well, and also how are we going to learn from it so that we don't have, you know, one of the things I keep thinking about, cause we've talked about some, you know, similar stuff a couple times on the show. Uh, when we talk, you know, we had an episode about kind of the connection between the wildlife and the urban forest and, you know, forest fires comes up and mismanagement of forest comes up and all these things come up, you know, and how do we get to a place where the forest isn't mismanaged is one of the things that I, you know, and I mean, that's one of those million dollar, billion dollar questions. Yeah. You know, when you start, start with diversity. Yeah. (laughs) It'd be a good place. Yeah, no, totally. But you know, it's like so far out of whack. Yeah. And if you're an extremist like me, you just say, take the people out of it completely. (laughs) Let Let nature do what nature's been doing for long before we started fucking around with it. True that. I mean, I'm, I must say, you see our human impact when you go and you look at the fireweed, which is one of our lovely natives that is, of course, so directly tied with fire, but loves disturbance in general. And you see areas where uh, the fire ripped through, but the fireweed was allowed to regenerate. And then you see areas where the fire ripped through and the forest was cleared due to its hazardous nature. (laughs) <laughs> and in return, they ran all the equipment through in the wintertime when the fireweed is getting established. So you have really minimal regeneration of the fireweed. One is the fireweed that is the protective plant for all the new seedlings that are hatching out, germinating, and trying not to get baked by the now full exposure. Yeah. And so I, I've been looking into this because I, I love fireweed. I think if I were going to get a tattoo, it would probably be like a fireweed blossom or something. That's awesome. Um, I'm also a beekeeper and it's the champagne of honey, it's fireweed honey. So. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm really interested in see, you can see it, how you can literally look off the, the one highway 126 and you look out and you're like, wow, there's some fireweed, but our human disturbance interrupted the natural cycle, mm-hmm. right? Should be a lot more fireweed. Yeah. Um, because otherwise you're not going to have the same regeneration rates. Right. So if we want it to happen naturally, we really do need to take humans out of the gosh darn equation. I like how you said that's extreme because now I can be like, yeah, cool. I'm extreme too. Like I, <laughs> I totally, agree with that. totally agree with that. Less human impact. Uh, let the forest go through its natural process. It's funny. We make as humans, we make this mistake over and over again where we try to, and I legitimately think we're trying to help, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think people are trying to disturb it. You know, they now greed gets in the way, you yeah. know, these things start, Monoculture. Yeah, look, look, mo- uh, ex- look. It, monoculture. Look, I really want to help, but I can make a lot of money if I just do this. Like, I'm still helping, but I'm also making money. Well, and that's what it is. Everybody's like, I, I want to help. You know, it might not be as much help, but I'm going to make a lot of money and I'll do it this way. Well, everybody take 
Well, this is a really good uh, perspective on tree care, actually, in general. For me, you know, I, I talk with clients and I say, okay, well, what do you want to see happen with your trees? Yeah. And then I, I say, okay, well, there's what you want to have happen, but there's also what am I going to do when I'm hanging out there, limb walked out on your you know, dead maple branch over your greenhouse and we're trying to adequately deal with this, you know, squirrel chew or whatever. Cause now I got to think about what's in my best interest. Right. right. Yeah. And then you got to think about well, what actually is in the best interest of the of ecological the, community. Totally. Of the right? tree and the, Oh dude, you just connected those dots like a motherfucker. Yeah. Dude, that's, <laughs> yeah. My, that's my jam. So that's what I've been doing when I do uh, uh, tree work. You know, that's why I call it tree works is because I'm actually doing work for the trees. Mm-hmm. Like kind of like you said, with with we're into preservation of these trees, exactly. pruning for preservation, planting with long term regeneration and understanding, well, what species are going to be more apt to survive through our ever changing climate? You know, I'm looking at replanting with a lot more oak, believe it or not. We don't have any oak really where I am. It's a little too wet, just barely, mm-hmm. barely too wet. You go 10 miles uh, towards Eugene for now. Yeah, it's exactly. too wet for now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so now I'm, I'm planting a lot more oak. I'm gonna be really, I'm really interested in madrone, oh. um, ponderosas, ponderosa, yep. yeah, valley pine, and then I think I'm gonna do some sequoia. I think I'm gonna do it, and, and then I'm gonna throw some figs in the mix because you know, kind of a decorative landscape thing. I got this microclimate right along the road where I said they have already cut down all these trees that were in the easement, and now it's like full sun and steep and kind of rocky, and I think get some figs established and I think they'll love it. So I'm going to do a little figury yeah. in, in among some of these things. Try to keep it native. Yeah. Very much keep it native, you know, cause I'm trying to help. Right. <laughs> You're trying to help. Man, I got to get out to your place. You do. I, I got to get out there. It's long. been way too long. Last time I was there, I think me and Corey were there together last time. 2000. It's when we, the Sperry training was out there and it might, was that the last time the Sperry training was out there? You probably that yeah, was like yeah when we did the aerial rescues and everything and 2018 is that when it was like the start it, of yeah could it sounds about right Maybe yeah. 2017 but either way i just got to get out there you do you do yeah it's oh. it's changed a little bit <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but i'm i'm like before this conversation like i was bummed about about the idea of going out there and seeing this amazing property. I mean, that property was so beautiful with all the giant trees and generations of work done on that property. And the idea of it getting burnt down is just so sad. And I mean, I can't even imagine what you, how you feel as someone that was there through the process, as you explained. Yeah. But coming out of the conversation, I'm hearing about this hope. It, it, and you know, that's kind of the metaphor of the fire, right? Is the, the fire burns and then there's the rebirth, the Phoenix. And that's what I'm getting jazzed on right now. I'm like, man, yeah. I want to walk the property and be having this conversation with you. Oh man, you should come see our fireweed collection. Nice. I, I've of course been, you know, I'm a plant geek at heart and, and, uh, you know, pre COVID love to travel the Northwest. And so I, and I had this enamored love affair with fireweed. So I've been collecting fireweed seed from, Olympic Peninsula and the Gorge and uh, Mount Pisgah and like this all over connoisseur fireweed collection. Coast. Like I just got all this fireweed and I had no idea. It was like really strange kind of ghostly premonition. Like, oh, this is fireweed, this is an important plant. I should bring in these genetics into the space. And I'm telling you, come check it out. It is awesome. Mm. So awesome. Mm. And we have 
pretty much done all the the removal of the fire trash, which is really cool. So you don't see all the burnt up kind of psychologically disturbing stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, we kind of the biggest silver lining of the whole thing for us is uh, the neighboring property had a multi-million dollar 10-bedroom mega mansion log home. It had like 100-foot-long trees as beams. This thing was nuts. A giant tinderbox. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A giant tinderbox complete with a rock climbing wall and a movie cinema and a wine cellar and all this shit. Right? Thing totally evaporated in the fire. Oh, Oh, gone. Gone. Right? And You didn't have a trail camera on that, did you? No, I wish. (laughs) (laughs) But the... Neighboring lady is someone who I've done tree work for in the past. We have great rapport. We always used to joke, well, not with her, but with amongst my friends. What if, what if that place next door just burned down one day? (laughs) (laughs) And so we say this, of course, very whisper quiet voice. And of course, here everyone's total loss. Everything burned down: the barn, the shop, the stables, the, the mega cabin, everything. And so now it's raw land and the landowner is not interested in rebuilding. She got her fat insurance paycheck and she's gone. She's like, I'm out. Yeah. Not dealing with it. Yeah. And so she's never quite put it on the market, but I approached her. I said, I'm interested and, you know, I'm going to expand my, my farm pyre. Yeah. (laughs) And, and realistically, I want to start a native plant nursery because the property is is full sun, water rights, year-round pond. It's like amazing extension of the homestead that I've been cultivating for 12 years now. And so as of this next weekend, it should be official. We're buying this place. Hell yeah. Expensive motherfucking raw land, but nevertheless, it's, it's riverfront. And it's got all these perks. Location, like location, location. Yeah. And we didn't have to get in any bidding wars. And the neighbors, yeah. like, was like really generous. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. And so there really is this phoenix rising from the ashes. Like, there is a whole new generation of, of ideas and ways in which we're going to do real deal restoration. Um, cause I really like the people to people stuff. That was always a really interesting component to doing tree work was at some point you got to talk to the homeowner. Yeah. <laughs> yep. like the, somebody yeah. who was like, actually, you know, questioning you about these trees cause you're apparently the expert. So you got to talk to people uh, you know, in your, f- from your expertise about the tree that you're working on. So now here we are, we're going to go into a whole new iteration of, of what the space can do. And I wow. we secured some funding too, some grant funding. And so it's like a whole bunch of stuff coming into the works and I'd love for you to see it. Yep. No, yeah. I'm, I'm going to put it on the calendar. Yeah. When we're, when we, uh, hit the record button and stop this, uh, we'll figure out a weekend. Cause I got to make, I'm, I'm the worst at being like, Oh dude, I got to see it. But I take too much on. I'm like, you know, I want to do this. I want to do that. Yeah. So I need to get it on the calendar. So before we go, let's, uh, do you have your calendar on your phone? 
Yeah, we could do it. We could do yeah, it. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah, and I'll you have to come out and check out the zip line and the rope swing and yeah, yeah. Uh, no, a couple of other things. It's all part of it. <laughs> yeah, we're we're gonna do some tree nets. We sh- I should get my buddy Andrew to come and talk. Another Andrew. Yeah. Another, and another Ginger. This guy's great. Awesome. Um, he's my buddy, but I've met him only once. <laughs> he runs a company called Be In Tree Nets. Check it out. Hmm. It is amazing. He's doing, uh, you know, arborist cordage and then a lot of paracord and does these weaves. Pulls the rope really tight, but in this kind of mycelium web type hmm. fashion. It's like very organic and it gets taut like a trampoline and he's doing them in trees. Like way up in a tree. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a couple trees. Oh, yeah. No, we need to. Yeah. I want to have him on. I want to talk. So one of the things I like to talk about, talk to is people that are tree related but not directly arborists yeah because like i i don't want to be in a sounding chamber too much with arborists of you know but that's a perfect someone that knows trees and has just got his own little kick so yeah i'll, I'll connect you guys we got a lot to perfect. talk about yeah, yeah yeah no 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 we got a lot to talk about um but i'm gonna i'm gonna uh get back into the holiday farm fire real quick yeah. a little bit because one thing that i'm looking at my the notes and one thing I want to kind of touch on is getting back to uh, to when it was going down. They, you know, the, we're still in the apocalyptic space. Ash is still raining from the sky. Because, I mean, we had ash for weeks falling from the sky. It was a trip. And I remember getting home from work, long day of work, and being like, all right, uh, you know, I had to go pick something up from the store. I had to go to Target to grab, you know, some more shampoo or just something, you know, stupid. And going there and walking around, and I was at Target, and I was like, oh, I'm going to stoke the kids out. I'm going to buy them a little toy or something to bring home to them. And walking through the toy section and hearing these people talking, and they had been evacuated from their homes. And it was like a whole family that was like, get a toothbrush. I don't have a toothbrush. I need a pair of shoes. And, like, having this realization of the impact on the people that live up the river. Like I'm sitting there looking to get some shampoo and a toy, you know, (laughs) and they're looking at like, I don't have a toothbrush. I don't have shoes, Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, but I wanted to recognize that side of it, you know, that there's this huge impact on the community. You know, there's a lot of people were like your neighbor who just moved, like, their house burnt down. They collect the insurance and moved on. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of people, you know, when we were doing the uh, tree inspections, you know, where, you know, they were living in trailers, you know, and getting ready, tearing down their old houses. And uh, But, you know, I wanted, I just wanted to take a minute and uh, speak to that as well because there was a lot of hardship had, in the holiday farm fire and there's a lot of overcoming. Yeah. You know, I was so, so going through and doing a lot of this, um, that hazard identification work there. Um, like just the resiliency of some of these people. Like I, I don't know if I could have been that strong, like hearing some of their stories. Like we were, we, um, we did a hazard identification in an old, uh, mobile home park and there were probably, I don't know, 50 homes in there all gone wasn't a single mobile house left over and these you know people's entire lives just 
up in smoke. That was downtown Blue River, right? Yeah, I mean, that whole place. city, town, was wiped off the map. Wiped out, yeah, just completely gone. But these people, like, they, they saw the fire coming down the ridge. They woke up in the middle of the night, and they saw this fire coming down the ridge. They didn't have time to think. They didn't have time to do anything. Like, they got in their car, or... The, the, the manager of the property, who's the one I was talking to, they got in their truck, they started pulling out, a tree came down and hit their truck. They had to get out of their truck and get into another vehicle, their RV, and then take that out and, like, barely got out. And just, like, they were still so full of hope. Like, they were just so resilient in the face of this catastrophic, world-ending, life-upending thing. And they were still, like, just chugging along. Yeah. It was, it was impressive. Yeah, that I mean, it's uh, it's unimaginable in a lot of ways to lose everything up in smoke. And like you say, you know, talking to uh, people out where in Blue River, it would be literally people pounding on their door because it hit Blue. I think it hit Blue River like at eleven thirty, mm-hmm. and you know, so it's the middle of the night, you know, and it's people pounding on the door and like we gotta go now. Like they, they see the fire on the hill next to their house, you know, and they're just, you know, jumping in the car and racing out with fire behind them. I mean, it like uh, talk about apocalyptic, you know, I'm talking about like getting in my truck and seeing some ash swirling in the passenger seat and being like, this is apocalyptic, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> they were like, you know, watching their house burn behind them while they were running away damn near, you know. Yeah. It, it's uh, it was a such a hardcore time, uh, for the whole area, um, and you know this it goes to, you know the kind of the refugees of these climate situations. You know, right right now there's going to be a huge. I know with Katrina, there was a huge to this day a huge influence of people that came into Houston, and you know, a lot of those towns that were near, you know, the, like the big cities that were closest to New Orleans and Louisiana, and they just would, you know, ship these refugees there. And now there's these huge communities made up of people that were refugees from there, still there. And it didn't wipe New Orleans off the map. And Katrina happened in 2004. Yeah. And, and Ida just hit the same thing's going to happen again, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so that's, that's the real price paid when there's these giant climate events are these refugees these people that had lives set up and just get upended you know and so it's uh it's one of those things with you know right now and i'm i'm i said i want to get back to the holiday farm fire and i'm went about as far away within the continental united states as i could going down to the southeast but you know there's a lot of people that are right now in a similar situation and there's a lot of tree companies i see it on like facebook groups and stuff online people saying like hey i'm heading to new orleans who needs help you know tree people and that's awesome because you're there's a need and you're going for that need but also understand you're going there under very different circumstances you know you're not going there uh you know this is not somebody that can afford tree work this is somebody that is hoping for an insurance payout you know and so uh, I can't, you know, I'm not there, so I don't know. I'm, I don't want to talk like I do know, but it just seems like a total different atmosphere 
you know, and a total different situation, you know. So, uh, yeah, as tree people, go down there and do good help because, you know, that this is an opportunity to help other people and uh, create that good karma. Even though there's not good or bad karma, create karma in a good direction, you know. <laughs> there's, no, there's enough karma in a bad direction in this world. Yeah. Be the change. Exactly. Um. Well, I think it's probably good time to wrap it up here pretty soon. Anybody have any last quick thoughts or stories or anything? I didn't go. So after we did the crane job, I didn't go into work for, I think, the rest of that week because I had I was dealing with personal stuff. And then I we also still thought that the fire was going to hit our place. And we had some people lighting some fires around. They, they had lit fires all uh, on the hills between Brownsville and uh, Lebanon. And I don't know why I think they were just a fire bat. This was, you know. Yeah, that was a crazy thing, man. There was there was the one next to your house mm-hmm. where you guys caught someone lighting a fire. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, a bunch of them. And then over in Fall Creek, mm-hmm. Eric caught people lighting fires. So it was like all these fire bugs were coming out and trying to light fires because I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it was yeah it was definitely just. You know, they they saw the fire, they saw the devastation, they saw how it ripped through, and they were just like, "Oh, well, I can just do this to these people just by setting a little brush fire right here." So it was one of those things. Fortunately, nothing. The ones in my area didn't amount to much because the fire department showed up instantly. Because of course, of course, the fire department is going to be you know keyed into that kind of stuff because they're good at their jobs. And uh, so anyway, I was I was doing that, and I just remember um, I was home for most of that time, and I just remember. So I live on a hill and I can like oversee a, a good portion of the valley. And there's this one dug fir that's kind of like one of my reference points. And I remember not being able to see that dug fir. It's probably a hundred yards away from my window. And I couldn't see that. And I just remember like seeing the smoke gradually like clear away from that just over like the period of two or three days. Um, and how that was like, that was the sign that's, you know, things were starting to come back to normal. Well, and I think that that's a good point to start wrapping it up. I think, uh, Corey, what's your final thoughts? Quit fucking around with nature. Like, nature does what nature's going to do. We, you know, we think we know best, and, you know, sometimes we have good intentions, but there are processes that we can't possibly understand, and the more we meddle with them and the more we try to enforce our will on the world around us, the more it seems to bite us, and... It just, it's hippy-dippy, but nature has a way. It's just let nature do its thing. What are your final thoughts? Yeah, final thoughts. Um, well, let's see, first and foremost, much gratitude for being invited to come out tonight. We'll have to do it again. Absolutely. I know we got way more stories than just uh, fire, fire recovery stuff, so. Yeah, that's tip of the proverbial iceberg there (laughs) um but yeah lots of gratitude lots of gratitude for even having a a place to you know sleep at night kind of like what you said you know basic preparations and kind of basic uh understanding of basic basic understanding no this is i'm not a forest ecologist right Mm -hmm. but basic understanding of kind of the land systems and the land the way that it works the way it's worked in millennia past and the way we've been managing it recently and why kind of where we go from here. I mean, 
those kind of things really saved my butt, both physically and emotionally. And I think on a mental level, I had just enough preparations in place. So that's a, f- a good final thought, too. It's just grateful to be prepared, to be more prepared ever since that, you know, because it's not a fire, it's a flood, right? So I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, what is next? And I'm feeling uh, very happy to have been so uh, related with trees, too, because I think on, on one hand, it's the trees that kind of brought us here tonight to talk, and um, they're definitely uh, one of the features of our landscape that I, we just wouldn't be the same without. And so when you talk about nature being as nature is, well, the trees are a pillar, you know, a keystone, if you will. And so yeah, I feel very uh, blessed to have developed such a relationship with them. That's, you know, like kind of what you said, still beginning. Yeah. And we'll see where it goes in the next couple of decades. Yeah. Um, my final thoughts, you know, it, one, it's kind of hard to believe it's already been a year, mm-hmm. you know, and the, it feels like the work is just getting underway up the river. You know, there's, uh, there's homes that are up now, but there's still a lot of construction going. You got all the crews setting the power lines, you know, and, uh, when you get the fire, it's kind of the forest hitting the reset button. You know, I was thinking about like the fireweed you're talking about, uh, you know, how, how it needs that fireweed kind of what your thoughts were, Corey, just let it be, let the, let mother nature do its thing. You know, there's, that's not going to happen. There's too much money to be made, but, uh, you know, let mother nature do its thing. And, you know, there's also something to be said about thinking about the refugees and we didn't really get a lot into it. There's always more you can talk about, but the, there's a lot of community support for people locally that were having a hard time. And, you know, you were kind of talking about how you're working with your neighbors more and, you know, meeting neighbors and, you know, finding that silver lining. So, uh, yeah, I think with that, I'll say stay safe and, uh, yeah, find that silver lining, be the Phoenix. 